Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. Welcome to one more edition of Politics Done Right. I'm Egberto Willis, your host. Listen, folks. He is an American advocate for health insurance payment reform. He is a former health insurance industry executive, a communications director. He is the New York Times bestselling author of Deadly Spin, an insurance company insider speaks out on how corporate PR is killing healthcare and deceiving Americans. He's a critic of HMOs and the tactics used by health insurers. Wendell Potter is one of our leading national advocates for major reforms of the insurance industry, including a supporter of Medicare for All and universal health care. He is that voice that we need to be listening to right now, especially in these times. Welcome to Politics Done Right, Senor Potter. Well, you said, Wendell, welcome to Politics Done Right. How are you doing today? Thank you. And please do call me Wendell. It's good to be on the show. Thank you so much. Well, look, let me let me tell you, um, it has gone from bad to worse. I remember during the Affordable Care Act, you had said, watch what's going to happen if we don't get the public option in the Medicare expansion. They will game it again. I, I, I just want to start there before we get into the core of what we're going to talk about. Your thoughts. That's right. Uh, I testified before Congress a number of times when members of Congress were debating what became the Affordable Care Act. And I said that if they pass that bill without a very good public option, that they might as well call their bill the Health Insurance Industry Profit Protection and Enhancement Act. Uh, The House did pass a version of the bill that had a public option. The Senate did not. Uh, And so we we wound up without it. And uh, uh, I hate to say I told you so, but since that time, big insurance companies have gotten so much bigger, so much more profitable. They're massively bigger than they were uh, when I uh, was in the industry and at that time, uh, to the point that uh, two of those big insurance companies are now uh, number five and number six in the Fortune 500 of the biggest American companies. Uh, their profits are outsized and they are just able to do Pretty much what they want to do. They're controlling our healthcare system in ways that uh, I feared, and uh, we've simply got to do something about it. We really need to wake up to what's going on. Now, you were you were an an insider. You were a part of this whole entire uh, insurance industrial complex, if, if you will. What within your soul made you say, you know what? I'm going to leave these millions of dollars that I uh, that I my future worth would be and I'm going to do what's morally right. What got into you that uh, because 
I, I want to, for the audience, I want to say something that's important, Wendell. The current people in the healthcare industry, in the insurance industry, they are doing their fiduciary responsibility, which is to maximize the profits for their shareholders, enhancing the executive bonuses. They're doing nothing illegal. They're doing what they're supposed to do. You are just a cog in the system. What Wendell has said is that's not how a healthcare system should be run. It shouldn't be run in that framework. Run with that, sir. Well, that's right. When I first started working in healthcare, I was working for a nonprofit hospital system in Tennessee, where I'm from. Uh, then I went from there to work for Humana uh, and then Cigna. So 20 years I spent inside uh, two of the biggest insurance companies in the country. And I at first was uh, unaware of the implications of for-profit companies or Wall Street controlling our healthcare system. But I became uh, more and more aware of the consequences. As I uh, rose up to the ranks at those companies, uh, I was able to see things that most people do not have a chance to see. I worked very closely with the CEO and the CFO, the investor relations team. I came to just see uh, and understand how Wall Street does control our healthcare system or controls those companies and any other country company that uh, is uh, an investor based or in, you know owned by investors. I had a crisis of conscience. In my first career, I was a newspaper reporter, and I tried to make sure that I was telling the truth and never obscuring anything that was important for people to know. But I came to realize that's exactly what I was doing in my role. I was vice president of corporate communications for Cigna. I worked uh, uh, at one of my 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 name was on every one of the company's earnings releases for 10 years. So I had to know how these companies made money, uh, what where it came from and what they did with it. And I came to realize that. Uh, the way they made their profits was, in many cases, making sure that people did not get the care that they needed. And the system that we had in place was one in which uh, increasingly Americans were not able to buy insurance. 50 million people didn't have insurance when I left the industry and when Congress began debating what became the Affordable Care Act. I came from a humble beginnings. I uh, grew up in uh, rural East Tennessee uh, in a working class family, farming family. Uh, And I know what poverty is like. I know what it is like when people do not have access to care. Uh, And I uh, some things happened to me uh, a few months before I decided to leave my job that just made it abundantly clear to me that I was doing the wrong thing, that I was making I I was contributing to the problems in our healthcare system. And I decided I couldn't do that anymore. You know, you tell a story about uh, seeing people come down from the hills to to uh, a health to, to get healthcare, to get free healthcare, and the, the impact it had on you, on on you, your psyche. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, while I was still in my job, I flew back to visit family in East Tennessee, and I read in the hometown newspaper about something that I'd never heard of before. An organization called Remote Area Medical was uh, hosting a big outdoor clinic or a clinic at a, a county fairground not too far from where I grew up. I was curious because the article said people would be coming from hundreds of miles away, even as far away as Ohio and and Florida, to get care that was being provided free by doctors and nurses and dentists who were volunteering their time over three days. This was in late July, and I went there, again, out of curiosity, and I saw something that just shook me to my core when I went into the fairground. Uh, People were lined up by the hundreds, waiting patiently to get care. 
it was raining that day. So these people were soaking wet, but they were not going to be leaving their lines uh, to because they had been, in many cases, sleeping in their cars for days uh, to get an opportunity to go inside the fairground to, to get the care that they needed. And I, I saw that some of those lines led to barns and animal stalls on that fairground site. Uh, this was a county fairground. Uh, and I just... Uh, uh, immediately realized that I had to take some responsibility for what I was seeing because my job was to help perpetuate the system that we had in place, the system that still is in place. And uh, I made a commitment that day that I would uh, have to find some other way to earn a living. I saw people there who could have been people I grew up with, could have been my neighbors, could have been high school friends, could have been relatives of mine. Uh, and I, uh, I uh, tears stole down my uh, flow down my my face as I was looking at what I was seeing, and uh, I, uh, I I made a commitment uh, to to try to figure out what I could do about that. I didn't think I would be a whistleblower, uh, but I just uh, knew that I couldn't keep doing what I was doing, despite the fact that I was making quite a bit of money. You know, it's interesting because you're a whistleblower, a, a, a whistleblower, and you've blown the whistle and you blow the whistle over and over again. And it's amazing how the gravity of the system is so self-sustaining. One of the, the things that I that I promise to do in my life and with my platform and, and hopefully with with your help and the help of everybody else is to just let the average rank and file American understand what you saw there is not an anomaly, but it's something that's out there throughout this country, the richest country in the world, where we can't get the health care that we not that we deserve, but the health care that as a rich country we have all earned. We have all earned, irrespective of whether you are a McDonald's flipper or an executive in a, in a corporation. Now, um, it turns out that um, in the past, one of the reasons Medicare came into be is because private insurance couldn't quite find a way to profit from the healthcare on older people. So therefore, right. as usual, the things that are not that that the private sector cannot make a dollar on, they usually pass it on to the government. The government will take care of that. So Medicare was passed on to the government. Now, following that, bribing politicians, these guys figured out a way we can take back Medicare in a more secure, in a more advantageous way for us. Why don't you explain to us that procedure that occurred that has led us now to Medicare Advantage, a big one of the largest frauds on, on the American taxpayers? You know, you're exactly right. Uh, insurance companies had no interest in trying to insure older people, uh, people on fixed incomes, people who didn't have a lot of money. Uh, they, those people couldn't afford their premiums. Uh, so that you're right. That's why the Medicare program was created. Uh, but over the past several years now, uh, past 20 years in particular, uh, these companies have figured out because of their closeness to politicians, they were able to convince politicians uh, that let us take care of access to care for people who are enrolled in Medicare. We can do it more efficiently. We can make sure that people get the care that they need and cost 
taxpayers less money. That certainly was, uh, they, they sold policymakers a bill of goods. Uh, I, at the time, thought, well, maybe that is maybe that is uh, something that can be pulled off. So I was going along with it. Uh, but what we have seen is that uh, more and more taxpayer dollars are going straight into these big companies. And what they're doing uh, through their Medicare Advantage plans, Medicare Advantage, by the way, was created in 2003 uh, by uh, when Congress passed what was referred to or called the Medicare Modernization Act. Mm -hmm. It created not only the uh, version of private Medicare that we have now, but also the Part D prescription drug mm -hmm. plan. And both of those programs have turned out to be extraordinarily big cash cows for big insurance companies. And they have been aggressively uh, marketing uh, these plans to the point that more than half of people who are eligible for Medicare in America these days are enrolled in one of these plans. And, and they're extraordinarily profitable because these companies have been able to rig the system to get more and more money out of the federal government, out of uh, our tax dollars. And uh, one other way that they're able to make so much, so much money is by refusing to pay for care that people need. Uh, there's a, a practice called prior authorization that is used aggressively uh, by these companies uh, to make sure that people are not getting the care that their doctors know they need. So people are dying. People are dying prematurely because of these denials and delays of care in Medicare Advantage. Now, let me ask the question this way. How do you convince a politician that a government uh, who is administering Medicare Whose sole, whose sole expense is administering that bill, figuring out how to pay, figuring out if there's fraud here or there, compared to a private company that has to pay ex high-paid executives, that have to pay bonuses, that has to pay shareholder dividends, that has duplicative services, meaning if there are several insurance companies, each of them have their own database, database administrators, uh, advertising budgets, all that sort of stuff. All of those are all costs coming out of that same pot that the government would have to spend out of if it didn't. In other words, all those costs are costs not going towards healthcare. It's going towards administering. Yeah. Why would they fall for the private sector fallacy that's been told many a times that in every case, the private sector is more efficient than the public sector? Really three ways. Uh, one is obscuring that kind of information, to hide that, to not talk about that. You don't ever lead with that kind of information. Uh, the other is uh, uh, through relationships and ideology. <clears throat> you are able to convince uh, politicians that you have helped uh, fund their campaigns uh, that are ideologically aligned with your point of view, who who have the opinion that the private sector can do anything better than the government more efficiently. Uh, and uh, a lot of politicians, a lot of people buy into that. They, We in this country have this notion that the capitalistic system uh, is sacred and uh, something that uh, can always do a better job of, of uh, whatever it might be than the federal government. So you have that. But the other thing is what I was alluding to, campaign contributions and lobbying. Uh, these companies are able to uh, shell out millions and millions of dollars every election 
to campaigns and they uh, send money to both Republicans and Democrats. And that's protection money. Uh, and they spend a lot of money on lobbyists. Every uh, big company has a lobbyist uh, on staff, but also spend enormous sums of money hiring uh, firms that do lobbying in Washington and the state capitals. So you have all of those things playing together. And that in that has got us to where we are now. Uh, it's lying and obscuring information. It is uh, uh, lobbying and it is campaign contributions and just frankly, ideology. Uh, so many people are blind to the fact that uh, these companies are ripping off taxpayers left and right. You know, um, before I, I came on with you, um, every the first Saturday of every month, I have a program, an addendum to my radio show called Ask Egberto Anything. And I told them today that I was speaking to you and, you know, uh, they were very happy to know, wow, you're speaking to Wendell. Ask him two specific questions. Since we're talking about Medicare Advantage, they said, what can we do to change the name Medicare Advantage to something more appropriate to let people know Medicare Advantage is neither an advantage nor is it Medicare? One thing is to support a bill that was introduced by two members of Congress, uh, Congressman uh, Mark Pocan of Wisconsin and Rokana of California. Uh, they are the lead sponsors of a bill that would uh, prohibit these companies from even using the name Medicare in their marketing materials. Uh, that is really important because people don't know the difference. Uh, and the advertising that they do uh, conflates the two programs. People don't know that Medicare Advantage is really a privately operated uh, big business. They don't really understand that. And the advertising purposely obscures that. Uh, so that's one thing. One is to support that legislation, to write letters, make phone calls to your members of Congress to support that. Uh, and also to support legislation that would uh, crack down on how they're marketing these plans. There's also, there are also bills before Congress that would do that. We're, I'm seeing that members of Congress are beginning to wake up, uh, certainly on the Democratic side, but even Republicans are beginning to understand how the program that they largely created uh, has been ripping off taxpayers, has been depleting the Medicare trust fund. Uh, so, But it requires people to reach out to their members of Congress and say, this is something that has to change. And the various ways we have to change it is, number one, like you are, were saying, keep these companies from even using the name Medicare in their, in their marketing materials. The next question, uh, and, and this I think is a difficult question. I don't even know where to start, but right now we spend more than twice what probably the most expensive country spends right now on their health care. Um, how can we, forgetting about insurance and all of that, how can we reduce the amount that's being spent on health care, given that our outcomes are no better than the other countries? Well, you really do have to have a fundamental rehaul of our healthcare system to do that. The big reason, the biggest reason is because of administrative costs in this country, uh, about a third of what we spend. And we now spend four and a half trillion dollars on healthcare altogether, uh, which is, you're, you're exactly right, is twice as much as the average of all the other developed countries in the world. Uh, and they provide, those other countries provide better care than we do, and they provide universal coverage, and we don't. Uh, and it's largely because, number one, the administrative cost, when you have all these insurance companies and for-profit entities involved in healthcare, every one of those 
uh, adds to administrative costs. When you have these private insurance companies operating, all of those companies have high administrative overhead, but they make it necessary for doctors and hospitals to also have administrators, people who do nothing more than work day in and day out with big insurance companies. Uh, so that's a big thing. And the other is to just curtail the power of these big companies, break them up. Uh, you've got, like I said, uh, United Healthcare is the fourth largest company in America. CVS, which owns Aetna, uh, is the sixth largest. Cigna, where I used to work, is the 15th largest. They're far, far bigger than they were when the Affordable Care Act was passed. We've got to work with our members of Congress and the administration with the FTC to call for these companies to be broken up because we're getting to the point that you've got just a very, very few large corporations uh, run by Wall Street and investors uh, that uh, is really calling the shots. And they don't have any incentive in bringing down the cost of care because as the cost of hospital care goes up, as the cost of drugs go, go up, these big insurance companies just increase premiums. Uh, and that is costing our employers and all of us as employees and taxpayers uh, enormous sums of money that uh, that's simply unknown in other countries. Um, as As a... As someone who understands that Medicare for all, healthcare for all, universal healthcare, whatever you want to call it, one word we are all uh, that we are all uh, have healthcare. It's a right that we all have healthcare. I understand that if there's a single payer handling that, I understand that if we take the for-profit method out of the delivery of the service, out of the uh, administrative service, that it would be more efficient. My question to you, given the infrastructure that we have in this unwieldy system, what would be the pathway, what would be the migration from this unwieldy system into a well-organized healthcare for all system? It's a good, good, very good question. And I think there are various ways of getting there. One is to try to get it done in Washington. That's a very, very heavy lift, as we've seen. Uh, there are organizations that have been trying to get that to happen for more than 30 years. Uh, uh, the other is through the states. Uh, and some states are uh, considering legislation, California in particular, uh, but also other states have uh, legislation that will be considered that would create a state-based single-payer system or some kind of a system that would be similar to other countries around the world, other developed countries that are doing this much better than we are. So that's that's one way. I think it is going to be very, very hard for us to see that kind of change in Washington until we do something about who is in Congress. Uh, you've got the makeup of Congress now uh, such that it's, it's, it's not going to happen in the foreseeable future. So we've got to get involved in the political process. My second book was called Nation on the Take, How Big Money Corrupts Our Democracy and What We Can Do About It. And that is at the core of the problem that we have, is that these companies are, are being able to control the, the levers of power in Washington and the state capitals. We've really got to address that. And whenever I have a chance to talk to people who support single-payer healthcare, Medicare for all, whatever you want to call it, uh, or just to uh, progressively improve the system that we have, uh, you're running up against the power of these big corporations that spend so much money, uh, as, as we were talking earlier. So you've got to do something. Uh, as uh, advocates, try to devote some, some time and attention to money in politics, because that is so important, so fundamental, and it's a big barrier to getting to where we need to be. Uh, Wendell, uh, my last question is always the same. What would you have liked me to ask you or what should I have asked you that I didn't? 
I don't know that I you've covered uh, fundamentally, I think, the biggest questions, the biggest reasons why uh, we are where we are and what we need to do. I think uh, that I would say that uh, to get to universal coverage, uh, let's not get hung up necessarily on one one path. Uh, we've got to consider how else can we get there? What other things can can happen? And I would say that employers have a big responsibility as well, too, because so many of us get our coverage through the workplace. I would encourage people to talk to their employers, to their HR people, uh, to protest the fact that every year our premiums go up, our out-of-pockets go up. So we've got to wake up and realize that our pockets are being picked day in and day out. I lead a coalition of organizations called Lower Out-of-Pockets Now. There's stuff that has to be done that's incremental before we get to single-payer health care so that we're not spending so much money uh, and not being able to pick up our medications not being able to go to the doctor because of the high out-of-pocket costs that we are subjected to. So there's a lot that we can do as advocates other than uh, just supporting Medicare for all or universal health care, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we've got problems right now. People are dying every single day because of the practices of these companies. So I would encourage people to pay attention to that and call on their lawmakers to do something about the things that can be fixed right away. Uh, rather than uh, looking down the road to achieving uh, a healthcare system that is more just, we've got there's some steps we can take right now to get us where we uh, closer to where we need to be. I'm glad you said that because that also helps me because there are certain times that I I just want to jump on it and get it done all right away. But you're absolutely right. There are things that we can do incrementally right now that eventually puts us on the path there. Uh, Wendell, you have a newsletter that is packed with information. And I tell you what, I, I am ashamed that I didn't quite read your newsletter before. I just read the material that you put out there in the in the ethos all of the times. I found that I, sub, I became, I just want you to know, I became a paid subscriber of your newsletter today. Why don't you tell people how they can find your newsletter? My newsletter, thank you, Abriello. It's uh, uh, it's called Healthcare Uncovered or Wendell Potter's Healthcare Uncovered on the Substack platform. You can find it at wendellpotter.substack.com or just Google me and Healthcare Uncovered and you'll find it. The content is free. I do appreciate the paid subscriptions because that helps us to do more reporting. Uh, we have, I think, some of the best analysis and, and uh, uh, essays on healthcare that anybody's producing, things that other reporters are not covering. Uh, and uh, we have some other voices that contribute as well, too. So thank you very much. And I hope people will sign up. Again, it's free, but we certainly appreciate the paid subscriptions. It helps us a great deal. Wendell Potter, one of the leading national advocates for major healthcare reform in the country and the author of Deadly Spin, an insurance company insider speaks out on how corporate PR is killing healthcare and deceiving Americans, as well as the other book that he just mentioned that will also be in this blog. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. Thank you so much, Shapiro. Thank you. GOP Representative Tony Gonzalez from Texas, a border a border district uh, came on to this week with uh, George Stephanopoulos and George made a complete buffoon out of this Trump sycophant as this Trump sycophant endorsed Donald Trump 
and try to say that one of the reasons the country is in turmoil is that, uh, you know, Biden didn't turn out to be the uniting president that he was supposed to be, absolving Trump of all that he does to create chaos, specifically by lying to his constituents. This guy admits that, oh, yes, uh, Trump, uh, you know, Trump lost the election. Oh, yes, those people who invaded the Capitol, uh, the, who, the terrorists who invaded the Capitol, uh, yeah, they were, they were in fact guilty. They should be thrown away. They are not heroes. All the things he said is opposite to what Trump is on the stump saying about these guys being hostages and heroes that January 6th, so the reason for January 6th was because the people were mad that uh, he won the election and somehow it was stolen from it. Gonzalez do not, does not believe any of that, but still he endorses Donald Trump. And uh, Stephanopoulos, in, a com- in complete uh, awe, not awe, but com- he just couldn't believe that this guy with a straight face could go out there and say, yes, I endorse Trump, and these are the reasons why. Check this out, and then we'll take it on the other side. January 6th, you called that one of the darkest and lowest days in American history. What do you make of the new reporting? As far as this uh, January 6th uh, new details coming out, you know, I was there. And so, you know, the day before, uh, I, I sent my family home because I felt they were unsafe. I, uh, while while the speaker and other members were fleeing the chamber, there were a handful of us that were running to the door. There was an anger built in our country then. And three years later, that anger has not stopped. There's this division that continues to get fueled. You also called the rioters domestic terrorists. Uh, but President Trump calls that day not a dark and low day. He calls it a beautiful day. He also calls those people you call domestic terrorists hostages who deserve pardons. So you've endorsed President Trump. Do you now agree with his belief that January 6th was a beautiful day? Well, George, uh, Donald Trump wasn't responsible for January 6th. Uh, the anger in this that was built up by people that no longer believe in the system or what was responsible. And that hasn't changed. More and more people do not believe in the system. My district, which is 70%, uh, 42% of the southern border, 70% Hispanic, people aren't talking about January 6th. They're talking about feeling safe in their homes. They're talking about putting food on the table, keeping their kids safe in school. But President Trump is talking about January 6th. Again, he is calling it a beautiful day. He's talking about pardons for those people you call domestic terrorists. Do you believe those rioters should be pardoned? Well, they're, they're certainly not hostages. When I think of a hostage, uh, I think of what happened, you know, Hamas uh, taking the, the hostages in Israel. Uh, they're certainly not heroes. You know, I, I, they, 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 dis, they, they broke the law and, and we have to obey our laws. We are a nation of laws and they have to obey the laws. I, I'd also understand and we never got to the root of why they did that. It was always kind of a, a brush over and it immediately went into politics. If we continue to kick the can down the road and not get to the root of the issue of why people are angry, it's going to create more dangers. Well, but, but Congressman, hold, hold, hold on a second. There's a lot angry. of evidence. There's a lot. Of, and, and part of the reason they were angry is they were fed a lot of lies about the election from the man you now support to be president again. Well, they felt as if 
President Biden stole that election, and nothing has changed since then. You know, but wait, but did President Biden, Biden steal? The, did President Biden steal the election? Of course not. Of course he didn't steal the. He is he is the president of the United States. But Senator Senator Biden was this bipartisan deal making individual that everyone thought they were going to get. President Biden has turned out to be much different. Now I hope that changes. Right, we have some very big ticketed items. This national security package. I mean, when people are angry, they do desperate things. But sir, that, that that anger is being soaked by the man that you have endorsed for president of the United States. That's what I don't understand. You've been very forthright here. You've you've called the, the rioters domestic terrorists. You've said they're not hostages. President Trump says they are hostages, says he's going to pardon them. You've called it a dark day. He calls it a beautiful day. I don't understand, given all that, why you've endorsed him for president of the United States. I, I think back to the policies when President Trump was in, was in office, and I think back to my district, we did not have the border crisis that we have now. We did not have the humanitarian turmoil. We did not have the chaos. That's the number one thing. I, I don't disagree with you. I think people want solutions, but how can you have solutions if you can't agree on something as fundamental as the peaceful transfer of power? I do think that's fundamental, and I, but it's also an election year. So you're going to see everybody throw fuel on the fire. If, if, if you want to bring people together, if you want to solve these problems, doesn't the responsibility begin with not endorsing a candidate for president who's spreading lies about the last election? This is what I've learned about endorsements. You, you, get, you get all their enemies and, and hardly any of their friends. Endorsements are just a piece of paper. Uh, but, but I do endorse. I do endorse President Trump. What he's talked about, if he's president again, is suspending the Constitution, using the military to suppress protests under the Insurrection Act, pardoning those protesters and bringing treason charges against the outgoing chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. You're endorsing that as well. If everything Donald Trump says and does you want to put on my back, uh, we're going to be here all day because he's, he's a busy man. Uh, I look at it through the lens of as a member of Congress representing nearly half of the border, I can either focus on the shiny object and, and talk about you know what President Trump had for breakfast or what he said last night, or I can try to work with my colleagues. Uh, and I appreciate that. I hardly think that supporting the Constitution is a shiny object, but thank you for your time this morning. One has to, I, I don't get it. Does Trump have hitmen on these politicians? Do these politicians love being in the House so, so deeply that they can't uh, tell themselves a truth, tell their constituents the truth? Is it that they, they, they believe in being enslaved by a feeble uh, uh, paper tiger that they can't really go ahead and say, no, this guy is completely wrong. This guy doesn't have much more to, to go. No matter what, whether he wins or loses, you know, he's pushing 80, near 80. Why would you debilitate your entire character? to a person like this. Uh, what is it? What is it that make these people so weak, feeble, immoral? And I could give a litany of other uh, descriptions. They should be ashamed. As Chris Christie exited the Republican primary race, the presidential race, uh, I find it ironic that it is at that time we hear his mea culpa, and not only his mea culpa, but likely the best American patriotic speech 
that he's ever given in his life. And it's important in these times because I believe even as he doesn't have big, a lot of support in the current MAGA Republican Party, he likely will have the ears of most sane Republicans. And by the way, it's still a large percentage of sane Republicans out there. They're cowards, but they're sane. There are a lot of folks who won't admit that they hate Trump and they don't want to vote for Trump. Well, a, a speech like what what uh, Christie gave at the end as he's suspending his campaign, I think will make a lot of difference if it gets the coverage. If it gets the coverage and if people get to see real solid excerpts of that speech as I'm presenting here. Check this out and then let's take it on the other side. We're in this race to tell the truth. From the beginning, we've been in this race to tell the truth. Fact is that as we were watching this race come together from where Mary Pat and I were sitting at home in New Jersey, we were really concerned that nobody would tell the truth in this race about what's really at stake. And no one would tell the truth about Donald Trump. No one would tell the truth about his divisiveness, his stoking of anger for his own benefit, him putting himself before the people of this country, myself included, who gave him the honor of being president of the United States from 2017 to 2021. Personal ambition is a necessary element for any political candidate. You gotta get out of bed in the morning and be able to really believe in your heart that you have something to offer to folks that's better and different. And so I have no argument with people who are involved in politics being ambitious. You need to have it. But it can't be what governs your decision making. Ambition can't be what makes you decide how to do things as a public figure. It could just be the fuel that gets you out of bed, that gets you in front of a room like this, that gets you on the phone raising money, that gets you working for people who you believe in and gets you working for yourself. I made a political decision eight years ago when I dropped out of the race in 2016. I looked at the polls and I decided that Donald Trump was going to be the nominee and that since I'd known him for 15 years, that I could make him a better candidate and if he won, maybe a better president. I knew his flaws, but I also knew he was going to win the nomination. So I decided that I would get behind him and support him. I let the ambition get ahead and in control of the decision-making. And after I figured that out, I promised myself and I promised my wife that I would never ever do that again. And I'm not going to. So for all the people who have been in this race, who have put their own personal ambition ahead of what's right, they will ultimately have to answer the same questions that I had to answer after my decision in 2016. Those questions don't ever leave. In fact, they're really stubborn. 
they stay. And so I know how I'm answering those questions. I've never believed that Donald Trump was a foregone conclusion as our nominee in this race. And I knew that the case had to be made against him. Now, there are people in our party who are resigned to the fact that he was going to be the nominee, resigned with the fact that the case didn't even need to be made because it would be a waste of time. They sat on the sidelines and all they did was voice their opposition in private, behind closed doors, quietly, so no one could hear. And that's not leadership, everybody. That's cowardice. It's cowardice and it's hypocrisy. As a party, we need to be willing to take the responsibility for the part we've played in getting here. Our country is angry, it's divided, it's accomplishing little, and it is leading our citizens to be exhausted. And you just look at what's happening just in the last few days. Good people who got into politics, I believe for the right reasons. People like Senator John Barrasso, people like Congressman Tom Emmer, stand up and endorse Donald Trump. They know better. I know they know better. People who continue to deny the results of the 2020 election. People in leadership in the House who go on TV and say that the people who attacked the Capitol on January 6th are hostages. We want to change this party, and if we want to change this country, it's hard work. It's not easy. From the moment I got into the race, the decision that I made was really simple. I would rather lose by telling the truth than lie in order to win. And I feel no differently today because this is a fight for the soul of our party and the soul of our country. Why have we resisted the calls to drop out of this race? Because unlike some of the other candidates, we're fighting for something bigger than ourselves. We're fighting for something bigger than self-interest. We're fighting for something bigger than the next title. I've got plenty of titles. I have enough titles to last me the rest of my life. U.S. attorney, governor, husband, father, son, brother. I have enough titles to last me for the rest of my life. We're fighting for something bigger. And it's something that conventional wisdom thinkers just can't possibly understand. And so they've been saying for weeks and weeks and weeks, because some polls that I should drop out of the race, that I should get out for that reason. The smallness of the campaigns who spend more time arguing and worrying about who should get out of the race than they have spent going after the front runner. 
They spend all their time saying, oh, Christie should get out. Scott should get out. Pence should get out. Hutchinson should get out. Bergam should get out. They and their donors have a different target every day to try to minimize the attention to their own campaign. How their own campaign is a campaign that doesn't play to win. It's a campaign that plays to not offend. The problems in our country, the divisions and influx at our border, the problems with our enormous debt, the failures of our education system, all of those things and much more will not be solved by people who are too afraid to talk about what the real problems are. If we ever have a hope of restoring this party to be a governing party of principles, we have to be willing to do the hard work and take some of the heat that comes with it. We have candidates in this race who have run away from forums where they were afraid they were gonna be booed. I run into the forums where I know I'm gonna be booed because being booed for telling the truth is a badge of honor. I'm proud of everything we've said and done so far. And I'm proud of all the people who have supported us and are willing to do what needs to be done to restore the soul of our country. See, because in the end, all those issues that we've talked about at all the town halls, they're all really important, but they're no more important than the most important issue. And that is the character of the candidate. You don't know what's gonna come across the next president's desk. You think you can predict it, but you can't. No one asked George W. Bush or Al Gore what they would do if four airliners were hijacked and flown into symbols of American power and killing thousands of Americans. No one asked them that in New Hampshire in 2000. But I was glad we had a man of character sitting behind the desk in the Oval Office when that attack came because I knew George Bush would do everything he needed to do to protect this country and its people and put them first, not himself first. Imagine just for a moment if 9-11 had happened with Donald Trump behind the desk, the first thing he would have done was run to the bunker to protect himself. He would have put himself first before this country. And anyone who is unwilling to say that he is unfit to be president of the United States is unfit themselves to be president of the United States. Campaigns are run to win. That's why we do them. I see the chairman here in New Hampshire. He knows we run campaigns to win. My goal has never been to be just a voice against the hate and the division and the selfishness of what our party has become under Donald Trump. It's also been to win the nomination and defeat Joe Biden and restore our party and our country to a new place of hope and optimism in this country. I've always said that if there came a point in time in this race where I couldn't see a path to accomplishing that goal, that I would get out. 
And it's clear to me tonight that there isn't a path for me to win the nomination, which is why I'm suspending my campaign tonight for president of the United States. I know, and I can see it from some of the faces here, that I'm disappointing some people by doing this. People who believe in our message and believe in what we've been doing. I also know, though, it's the right thing for me to do. The country that I think we should choose is the country that recognizes that our differences have always been our strength, not a weakness, not something to divide us and anger us, but our differences have been our strength. We've come from different countries at different times to different places with different skills, with different religions. And yet only here can those people become an American. You can't go to Germany and become a German. You can't come to Great Britain and become British, but you can come here and become an American, a real part of this country. The moment we become a place where people no longer want to come in search of a better, freer, stronger nation, that will be the real problem that will be harder to solve. We back our allies around the world, and they shouldn't have to think twice about having America's support. Yet we have petty politics interfering with supporting freedom fighters in Ukraine. We have petty politics interfering with defending our friends in Israel. We have petty politics interfering with making sure Taiwan is armed to fight off the Chinese. They use the border as an excuse not to do those things. How about we have a country where we can do all those things because leadership aspires to something greater, not to appealing to the lowest common denominator, which is what the leadership of the last decade and a half in the White House has done, including the current president. We need a country that once again feels like everyone has a stake in what we're doing. That we can bring people together. And it's hard. It's hard to do that. I did it for eight years in New Jersey, in a democratic state, with a Republican governor. And it's hard, because we have real disagreements. But those disagreements are small compared to the things that we have in common. But it takes effort. We have to work at it. We have to believe that the other person has a rightful place in our country. We have to believe that whether we agree with them or not, they got elected too. And they have a right to have a voice and to be heard and to have a vote and to have it count. This race has always been bigger than me. It's bigger than any one person if you do it the right way. I tried to change the conversation in this race. I tried to force a conversation in this race. The conversation about the real thing that's going on here. I stood on those debate stages, every one of them, the pundits in the media and the professional politicians who worked for other campaigns said I wasn't gonna make any of them. Right before every debate, now Christie won't make this one. No, we make this one. I made every one of them. 
But when I stood on there, I watched the other candidates arguing with each other as if the race was between us, pretending as if the guy who's in front and wasn't there wasn't to be spoken about. Like Voldemort in the Harry Potter books, he who shall not be named, because they feared even bringing up his name would make him appear with his magical, mystical powers to end their political careers. So they say ridiculous things, make ridiculous points. And let me tell you, if Donald Trump becomes the nominee of this party, the moment that it happened was when Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis and Tim Scott and Mike Pence and Doug Burgum and Vivek Ramaswamy stood on that stage in Milwaukee in August. And when we were asked, would you support someone who is a convicted felon to be president of the United States, they raised their hands. Give Ron credit, he had to look at everybody else first <laughs> to see if he wanted to raise his hand, but then he raised his hand. Kind of like cheating off somebody's paper in high school. They raised their hands. And I did not, and will not, and I cannot countenance that behavior. I want you to imagine for a second that Jefferson and Hamilton and Adams and Washington and Franklin were sitting here tonight. Do you think they could imagine that the country they risked their lives to create would actually be having a conversation about whether a convicted criminal should be president of the United States. I can't tell you how many people in New Hampshire have asked me, why isn't there a law against that? The answer is because nobody ever thought that someone would have the audacity to run for president as a criminal. And they never thought that any American electorate would actually support it. It's not their fault that they didn't put it in the Constitution along with 35 years old and a natural born American citizen. They didn't think, let's throw in here and not a criminal. They thought maybe we'd get that part. We're gonna show them now whether we do or we don't in the next 10 months. Do we get it or don't we? I'm out here saying what I'm saying for the last eight months because I didn't want to take the chance that you might not get it. I wanted to be the voice that was telling you this is unacceptable. We deserve better. And now there's some people who want the courts to save us. It's not up to the courts to save us. I remember what Benjamin Franklin said. I'm sure many of you do too. When he was walking down the street in Philadelphia after the Constitutional Convention, and a woman approached him on the street and said, Mr. Franklin, what kind of government did you give us? And he said to the woman, a republic, if you can keep it. Benjamin Franklin's words 
were never more relevant in America than they are right now. The last time they were this relevant was the Civil War, which of course we know was caused by slavery. <laughs> the last time those words were that relevant, back in those days, and now we are confronted 160 years later with that question again. A republic, if we can keep it, it's up to you. I've been running ads all over New Hampshire, ending it, saying it's up to you. Donald, uh, uh, Chris Christie is no saint. I mean, he admits that ambition probably allowed him uh, more participate more so in the Trump Trump domain than otherwise he would. But that said, to come out the way he did, yes, he has been criticizing Trump for a long time. Yes, he has been nailing Trump for a long time. But to put it in a completely cohesive manner in which he did in this speech, from the mia culpa right on to the ambition, right on to knowing this president who only cares about himself and understanding that living with him and being with him for quite some time, that he presents a clear and present danger to the American, to the, to the American, to the country, to the American people. I think it goes somewhere. I think it matters. And while the speech is kind of late, uh, I don't think it is too late for it to have an effect. So let's be clear. Let's be clear. Trump is a clear and present danger, and we need all to unite. All sane Americans need to unite to ensure he never sets his, his foot in the White House again. Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you.